from Integral Life, welcome to Everyone is Right. Carolyn Meese is one of the best known and most highly researched medical intuitives. Listen as she presents a fast, wild, rich and rollicking narrative of her personal struggles with spiritual intuition and the dramatic growth and unfolding that often resulted in this classic dialogue with Ken Wilber. This was originally published in November of 2003 and is one of a series of discussions that we're making available on the Everyone is Right podcast every Thursday afternoon. Stay tuned next week for another Integral Classic. Hi! And how are you doing? I was, I just pulled up the, the email thinking, okay, I've got myself, because I'm so capable of screwing up time and space. I do that every time. Oh, thank you. I don't know, why, why can't we get time zones right? I guess we're living in eternity, right? Well, all right. You like that answer? I'll, I'll go with that one, Ken. I, I like it. That makes me sound very good. It's that or organic brain damage. <laughs> okay. We can go that route, too. How are you doing? Good. How are you doing? I am doing great. God, you have, it's been a bit since we've talked, and you're just sort of everywhere and healing everybody. And well, I wouldn't go that with... far, but I, I've had, you know, I just feel... I'll tell you, Ken, I, had, I was sick and I didn't know it. You know, I had this uh, chronic pain and I'm doing all kinds of things. So much for medical intuition is what I have to say. Yeah. And it turned out, I went and did a tour of, of Australia and I'm getting sicker and sicker about four weeks ago. And I'm yeah. thinking, what is this? And it's high voltage pain, not little, but high voltage. And I can handle a lot. You know, I'm like this stormtrooper. Right. So then I went, no kidding. Seven days without food and very little sleep because it was so horrendous. Where was the pain originated? It was on the right side, and it went from my right shoulder, then divide, go right down the spine all the way to the base, okay? So I took my brother with on this tour of Australia, and and the day we get on the plane to go home, I'm psychotic. I hadn't eaten, and I was so exhausted and in so much pain. And my brother said, do you want something to relax yourself? I said, what do you got? He had a couple of Ativan. I popped four Ativan, three painkillers, and three codeine-based aspirin. My God. Oh, yeah. I At this point, and I don't, like, do drugs. No, I hear you. And I, I didn't care. At this point, I was out of All right. So I have no memory of the trip home. It's so fabulous. I have no memory. I don't know how he got me through through customs. and a quick, And then he... My, I know that I got back to Chicago, obviously, and so he dragged me out of the car, and I got back to my, my home. And uh, he, in the meantime, he'd been on the phone with my physician, and they uh, brought me into the hospital first thing the next morning, and I'm still I'm still in a drug stupor plus the time change. Gosh. So imagine that all your seven chakras are functioning, but they're not talking to each other. So you know you're, you're home, but you don't know why you're home, and you certainly don't know how you got there, and you don't know what you feel about it, and so you're all this, and you can't communicate. So then I'm, I... You just but, described the average American's ordinary day. But. I didn't think I, So all of a sudden, all my seven chakras kick in at once, but when they do, I'm on a gurney going to uh, x-ray. Bad and time I, for that to happen. Then. Yeah, with an IV in me, and I look... And I, I looked at everybody and I said, well, where am I? Oh, my and what? God. And so I had surgery and it turned out that I had this gargantuan gallbladder situation going oh on here. Oh, my God. It was absolutely phenomenal. But I have to say, this is my dysfunction of choice. I recommend it because 
you get this little sack of junk, and it all goes out, and there's no post-op, and there's no chemo, and there's nothing. Wonderful way to do it. And I feel like a million bucks. Look, I had no idea. See, for, you're right. For a major illness that can cause that much pain, that's the one to have. That's the one to have. Because you've and, got a story. You've got the experience. You've got to see what it's like. It lasted all of 15 minutes, and to hell with it. And that's gone. Uh, wonderful. And it was, it was absolutely, and then I came home and watched the Cubs lose. So <laughs> I... It's hard to know which is more painful. Yeah, tell me about it. Last <laughs> night, the city was absolutely sobbing. Oh, my God. How could they do that? Oh, my God. What, now, what, isn't that wonderful? I mean, this is what the really the great thing about being human is, is that, you know, no matter what your expertise, no matter how good you are, almost anything, it, the great psychotherapists always end up with some shadow element that just knocks them silly for a while. Mm-hmm. And then here's, you know, the great medical intuitionist is, is wandering around with mm-hmm. you know, eighth-degree pain, can't even spot a friggin' gallstone. No, not at all. Don't you love this stuff? I mean, it's just... Not only could I not spot it, I went to about 44, 40, 45 experts to deal with this pain. And treatments up the wazoo. I did everything but hang upside down like a bat. God. And still, nobody picked up, including moi, a gallstone condition. Not, not me, because, see, I associate it with old people. You know, young people don't get gallstones. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like cataracts. I mean, it's sort of, and it's so undignified. <laughs> it's one thing to say, I have a colonoscopy or whatever you call yeah, it. Colon- colonoscopy. There it is. There it is. But... To say gallbladder, it's just so unappealing. You know what I mean? But isn't it wonderful? Like I mean, the, last gout. Time, the last person to have a famous gallbladder was President Lyndon Johnson. I mean, that shows you how unglamorous that condition is. Yeah, well, <laughs> too bad it's not a Republican disorder. <laughs> but, but now it's, I mean, you're, you're over. It's, it's, oh, yeah, I am dancing in the street. I is... am. You know, I have not been in such a good place. Uh, For so long, Ken, I I actually am not quite sure what the cosmic ingredients are here, but something grand. So, so you're so you're reflecting on this. You're you're back out working again. Well, but no, I I'm always back out working. I get I have a lot of energy. I'm fine. What do you find then with all this energy? What are the two or even three things that are most interesting to you right now? And it could be, it could be theoretical stuff on energies or healing, or it could be actual you know, pragmatic applications that you're doing. What grabs your attention most nowadays? Now, yeah. what grabs my attention is, I guess I would say the archetypal involvement with cosmic order, but I need to apply that in a very grounded way. Okay. And for me, I'm writing a new book, and it's on the sacred contract of America. Because you've been doing work with contracts now for... Right, absolutely. And I I really can am completely captivated by the human participation in the creation of global and local events kind of thing. Right. And and how evolution factors into that and, and how much choice we have really to maneuver. And at the same time, I'm, I guess I'm intrigued with the... The way I look at life, which is that fundamental journey of self-esteem, and I don't mean that in the personality way, though it begins that way, but rather one in terms of developing that interior authority so that you manage your spirit with great care and you don't send it out on missions of destruction. Right. And that, to me, is based upon whether or not you can manage the primal fear of survival. Yeah. So I I find that intriguing because I now see that at the end of the day, I would have to say that the fundamental journey of life can be boiled down to the acquisition of spiritual self-esteem. Right, right. 
and that in that journey... In a personal to transpersonal sense. Absolutely. You go through that idea that the first level of self-esteem is the acquisition of stuff. Yeah. And then the second is the acquisition of people and external authority, and then that inevitably has to break down. Yeah. Would you sort of say there's a third generalized phase that you would actually name? and? Yeah. I, I think the third stage is when you confront the fact that your ego is it's like the paper ego. Yeah. Where you deal with all of those fears that sort of go along at that stage, the fear of betrayal, isolation, yeah. Yeah. failure. It's like the eye of the needle. Yeah. The fear that the outside world has more authority over you and then that interior spiritual schizophrenia where you find yourself working toward the wiring of revelation and the wiring of intuition and yet as it flows through you every choice most people make is to block that level of timeless guidance yeah yeah and and rather reduce their sensory system yeah. to physical guidance. Yeah. And therein lies that eternal conflict. Yeah. I agree with the Obviously, we don't mean this in any sort of strict linear or rigid way or anything right. like that at all. But there is this incredible sort of unfolding of consciousness, evolution, and development that does indeed tend to go first towards building up a personal ego or a personal self. And that's very important because we know what happens when that doesn't occur. Yeah. It's not some mystical state. It's really psychotic breakdown and borderline. Mm-hmm disorders and all sorts of problems that come from not being able to establish a self-boundary. Mm-hmm. But once that's established, you have to go beyond it. Absolutely. And that's, that's sort of like the building up to the personal and then going from the personal to the transpersonal. Absolutely. And again, those are not rigid rungs in a ladder or anything. They're sort of phases that are happening to people all the time anyway. But it sounds like you're really focusing on the point where people are sort of refusing to go from personal to transpersonal, so to speak. They're refusing well, to let go into that higher timeless guidance or awareness. It's absolutely an intriguing space because yeah. I watch them let their bodies break down. Yeah. I watch that schizophrenia of coming to workshops to learn that interior voice only to... What I realized years ago when I... When I it, Norm Sheely, this physician sure, that I've worked started with. started with, in a sense. You, yeah, yeah. Norm, Norm and I decided to offer this, this workshop on developing intuition, and I realized right before the <laughs> workshop started that was the most ridiculous thing I'd ever done. And I thought, what am I going to tell these people? Ohm and go on vegetarian yeah, right. stuff, all this nonsense, you know, eat cucumbers and watch. So <laughs> I, you know, because I don't respect any of that stuff. Yeah. I, I just don't. Between you and me, I think it's all nonsense. So. Yeah. I, you know, this oming and this and, and incense and fairy tales and wind chimes and Birkenstocks and, pyramid and, hats and, and really, and being braless and organic, get out of here. <laughs> Give me Neiman Marcus and, you know, I'm just, I'm a, I'm a five-star broad. I mean, I really love the Ritz, the Four Seasons. I don't organic and I am indulgent. I am a high-end mystic. You spell vacation room service. You you better believe there it. There we go. I was at Omega this past weekend, and someone was talking to me about the enchantments of camping. And I looked at them, and I said, you've got to be kidding. Oh, the day it would be. Hell would freeze before this girl camps. So anyway. Yeah, you tried camping, but there was no extension cord long enough. I can't, Really? Where's the bell, right? And where's the maid? To, at, let me tell you, I lived in Alaska in a cabin. With no heat and a dirt floor. Who needs it? I put my time in. I walked into the rear end of a moose. I did think it was a tree. I didn't even know. I really did. I walked in. 
I walked into oh, the oh, end of a moose. That's a meaningful relationship in Alaska. Yeah, right. I'm there. I'm apologizing to Bullwinkle <laughs> in the middle of. So I don't do any of that. So you're, sort you're, of so you're doing the same with Norm, and you're going, "What the heck yeah, am I going to do I, teaching uh, so intuition?" I, yeah. So I'm looking at them, and I thought, "Hmm." And eventually, the little light bulb went on in my head, and I realized this is the most ridiculous thing. It's so obvious that they are so intuitive that they're imploding and that what most people do is live a life begging God not to be intuitive lest their decision-making sensory system become too fast and time and space would have to move too fast for them. And that's what I finally understood. Well, you know, the avoidance of God, the contraction in the face of infinity is every person's constant choice. That's what's so, I think, amazing when you actually really get into the spiritual field is not how people are seeking spirit, and it's hard to find, but how Mm -hmm. spirit is literally unavoidable, and that's all people are doing is actually avoiding it, intentionally Mm -hmm. contracting in the face Mm -hmm. of that reality. And even when they claim to be seeking spirit, Mm-hmm. The, the, that's just a subtle movement away from it. As mm-hmm. you say, it's sort of their prayer is that they don't be given intuition. That That's sort of the subconscious, unconscious prayer that people have. Mm-hmm. So you're dealing with this all the time, this incredibly subtle resistance to infinity. Mm-hmm. And that's the strange sort of business that we're in, in a certain way. It's amazing to me, Ken. It is amazing to me. I did a, uh, I struggle a great deal with trying to maintain a positive sense about life because I think it's very easy for me, in spite of my thick Catholic background, <laughs> to slip into, and I, and, I, and I say that with love. I mean, I love the mystical heritage that I had. I was with the nuns till I was almost 30. Yeah, I know. And I love that yeah. part of my life. And, but I also observe people in that very subtle, subtle way, and I watch the tiniest flutter of their eyelid in, in moments with, each, uh, with, with people, and I can see that they have gotten an intuitive hit right. to say something that could empower the other, and they right. don't do it. They don't do it. I wonder why. Why is it so difficult to empower another person? And I look at that thick level of fear that where a person believes and is caught up under the spell that for me to empower you is for me to lose that power. Yeah, it takes away from me. It takes away. Strange, strange economic system. Right, the spiritual economics. And we look and the world is completely built on that perception yeah. right there, yeah. which is for me to help you cost me. Yeah, the more God you have, the less I have, therefore. Right, which is why I have to have gobs of stuff to share something small. Yeah. And, uh... It's a, very, it's a real poverty mentality. What, well, what did you... Uh, I'm curious what you actually did, what your own inner resolution was, just going back to the Norm Sheely thing when you're out there teaching intuition. Mm-hmm. How do you get this across to people? How do you come to terms with it yourself? How do you communicate this to people that are looking to you for some sort of guidance? What did you do to that in that actual conference? Well, what I did was the first time I tried desperately to teach about uh, what intuition was, what it was, and feelings, this kind of thing, all the while knowing that I was making it up and I was winging it. But finally, in the next workshop, I stopped in the middle and I said, you know what, people, I'm doing this backwards and I'm going to start out by telling you that everything I'm telling you is nonsense, so let's try and do this a different route. (laughs) And that's not unusual for me. I'm, I'm 
very intense as a teacher. And if I feel that I'm going down the wrong track, I don't have any problem with saying, I am now entering into a place where I don't know what I'm talking about. I don't have any problem with that. I don't have that kind of... And, And so what I said was, I'm going about this backwards. I now am beginning to believe that you're so intuitive that that's the source of your misery. So let's talk about this from a different point of view. Yeah, let's talk about what you're constantly, you're always aware of it and you're constantly not using it because it's going to be more than you can handle, you think. Right, exactly. And that for you to to recognize something as simple as asking yourself, should I stay at this job, should I not, should I stay, should I go, that in that instant you actually really do get the information. Yeah. But you don't want to respond that fast to guidance, so you turn yourself into an emotional turmoil that says, I don't know, I don't know. And then you start producing, you say to the mind, give me reasons why I can't do this. So the mind says, okay, let me look around here for a minute. The kids aren't old enough. You don't have any money. You're absolutely terrified of failure. Are those good enough? Do you want me to keep you up at night? What else do you want? So truly, at the end of the day, What this is about is managing the speed at which you want your life to evolve, knowing at all times that the source of your stress is that you could run much faster, and you know it, so you live your life making choices that reduce the speed at which your life moves and heals. The way I've said it to people is there's a simple equation, actually, and that's when I do a medical reading on somebody, what I do is I, I track where your spirit is other than in your body. And a different way to say that is I track your relationship to time and space right. so that the more energy you have out of your body is like psychic weight in the W-E-I-G-H-T sense. Right. And that means that it has to take a longer time for your body to heal or things yeah. to change. In other words, where are you other than here and now? Precisely. Yeah. Whereas the present time is weightless, but you spell that W-A-I-T. Right. right. And that I really see everything now through the lens of people making choices to reduce intuitive skill. Yeah. I now assume yeah. everybody's so intuitive they can't manage it. That madness that there is madness that should be called intuitive repression. Right. That it's right. not just, oh, you've had a bad childhood, if I hear that again. <laughs> you know, I'm, as I said to people, I was lecturing at the, over the weekend at Princeton, and I said, you know what, I so don't want to hear that anymore. I decided that I have no interest in healing anymore whatsoever. I don't have an interest in your pain, your childhood. I have no interest whatsoever. If you want that, go somewhere else. <laughs> Yeah, it's a fundamental change that we were talking about. You first get into this field, any of us get into this field, and we assume that by the time we find people that are sincere spiritual seekers, mm-hmm. that people are really on the path, they're really looking for spirit, and that's a genuine fundamental desire. But spiritual seeking itself is avoidance. It's contracting. It's the last ultimate way that you avoid spirit because to seek spirit presumes it's absent. Right. And therefore, every time you seek, you are presuming the absence of God, or the absence Mm -hmm. of goddess, or the absence of spirit. And therefore, the more you seek, the more you presume the lack, and therefore, the the less you are going to find it. Zen has this wonderful saying, um, selling water by the river. And that's sort of that's what all of us are in a sense doing is we're all plunged in water, people won't believe us, and so we're gonna go, Okay, well I'll sell you a cup of water now. Let's go sell water by the river. Is that brilliant? 
<laughs> and that's just what this field is all about. But rare is the teacher that actually comes, I found, that comes to understand that the mechanics of that, which is that we really are selling water by the river. And that that's sort of the whole point. And it's certainly what I hear you saying that you're doing, which is to say, wait a minute, people, you are in the river. I ain't going to sell you any more water. Mm -hmm. I'm going I'm to talk to you about ways you are pretending you're not in mm -hmm. the river. The yep. ways you're closing down, the way you're hiding the fact that you're always already enlightened or aware or intuitive, and you don't want to live up to it. Absolutely. And that's a different, entirely different approach, isn't it? Absolutely. That's so exactly how is right. this? How is this? Uh, how are people responding to their own greatness? Shall we say? You know, it's funny. I, I, people will always. I rarely. I can't think of one instance where when I presented the idea that you're, you're tormented because you are so intuitive, you're exploding. Yep. I have never encountered one person who said you're wrong. Wow. And I think there's a couple of interesting little That's twists so here. funny because ostensibly they're coming here to learn how to be that. And when you confront them with the fact that they're already too much of it, none of them denies it. No, and here's the reason. One is that in our culture... Being intuitive has been uh, viewed as being a gift, or what's worse is that it means, it assumes, it represents you as spiritually evolved. Yeah, yeah. So that when you say to someone, but you're so intuitive, their light bulb goes on. They think that's right. I am so conscious, so evolved, so this. That is a compliment. To say to someone, you are a repressed, miserable intuitive, <laughs> they think, now that's a diagnosis I can live with. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you know, that is it. I've been waiting to hear those words. That's what's wrong with me. I'm a talented, repressed mystic. That's it right there. I knew it. I'll take two of those. Because it's something that they can talk about and get a few, you know, perks on the side. That's, yeah. I thought you were a repressed mystic. Yeah, that's right. I mean, do, do repressed mystics have gin and tonics? What do you do here, girl? So, that's, you know, that is so different than saying you're a bitter, bitter, whatever, Nobody wants to hear that or to say to someone, you are absolutely terrified. Do you know what a little life coward you are? Do you ever see the lion in the Wizard of Oz? Instead, to say to someone, you know, the poor thing, you're so graced and you're so talented and you're so incredibly like near out of your body with intuitive gifts and you're just frightened to see that. That's right. That's it. That's amazing. So you see? So that's the psychology, almost the psychology of ordinary life, actually. It's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. Now, how does this tie in with some of your work on contracts? How do you tie this in with using that in order to help people sort of get a handle on this? Well, you know, my belief, truly my belief, is that somehow before we are incarnated, that our life is scripted. And, and you know, you can use any image you want. Will you sit around and talk with a bunch of angels? You know, I'll take this one, I'll take that. Past I'd, karma it, or anything. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we've got a bunch of language for a world we know nothing about. Yeah. But essentially, I have to look at the natural order and think everything seems to have a place and a time, and that has to apply to us. We, we are not chaotic. Yeah. Therefore, I have to assume that we are here on a schedule. Mm -hmm. And I also look at my own life and think of all the rather extraordinary things happen that I haven't planned. I don't, you can't plan for the extraordinary. And... When they happen, you've got to stand back and say, where did this scheme come from? Yeah. Whether the extraordinary is extraordinary trauma or extraordinary wonderfulness, I still didn't plan it. Right. So something is planning. Right. And 
from that, I, 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 I had a near-death experience. Not a great big, huge one, I'm sorry to say. No, no big lights tunnel. On, but it was enough. I bled to death. And the this? whole, yeah. When? It was a, it was a 1988 August. And I'll tell you, Ken, I, I don't learned, remember hearing about this before. Well, because I don't make that sort of thing too public. But I had, I had a whole little period of unmitigated hell, which uh, for me was very hard to manage. And I lived, I didn't have the backbone at the time to do anything about it. So my way of dealing with it, was that I became very angry and very um, just internalized anger. And that anger turned into fire. And I think what I really believe in the work in energy anatomy that I did, which is that that kind of, I was operating out of a familial basis. I, unlike a lot of people, had a delightful childhood, and I have a great family. And so for me, the template is one of trust at the get-go, I mean, I, I have a fairyland family. Yeah, yeah. I, I really did. Yeah. I had a fairyland family. Yeah. So, and my mother was Donna Reed, and I really did have cookies after school. <laughs> it, I'm not kidding you. It really was this way. That's a horrible upbringing. It was terrible, and we really did do prayers before that meal. That will prepare and you for the world It, it was all terrible, and there really were pictures of angels over our bed at night. And, oh, my God. And, no, really. It, this was the way I grew up. That's it was wonderful. wonderful. Oh. And, and and every weekend I was with cousins and aunts and uncles. At, but I still am. Yeah. I still am. Yeah. So this is my tribe. And it's like my big, fat Greek wedding. That's yeah. the way we are. Yeah. So anyway, this was not the way that was. And That all led up to this sort of internal one day, explosion. I walked into my farmhouse, and I started to bleed through the nose. And I, I don't get bloody noses. That's not one of my things. And then it just it continued, and then the next thing you know, blood clots went down my throat, and my neighbors came over, because I lived on a farmhouse, and my dear, dear neighbor said, oh, now, darling, nobody dies of a bloody nose. In the meantime, I'm leaning over this gargantuan salad bowl, and blood is flowing out of my oh, nose and my down my throat. God. And then I hear the, my, my dear friend Ray say, we'd better call the emergency people. So then the rescue team came, and they put me in an, <laughs> in an envelope, in an ambulance, <laughs> and, and these two, God bless them, old lady volunteers, they may as well have been old nuns with rosaries and the last yeah, rites, yeah. are next to me, and they had to prop me up because I would have choked on my blood. I am gagging by this time. We're on our way to the hospital. I live in the country, so it's a 14-mile ride. And the one says to the other, as if I wasn't there, I've never seen anyone bleed this much. The other one says, do you think she's going to make it? And I look to this old woman like, well, am I? And then I look out the window, and I left my body. Now, I used to be engaged to Ken Ring, who did all this research on your death experience. And I did, honest to God, go to dinner parties where I was the only one who hadn't died. So I, it, <laughs> what an embarrassment to Ken. Really, and it been. Said, you know how phallic? How long was your tunnel? It was truly this kind of nonsense. It was nonsense. These people who are spiritually competitive just blew me out of the water. You know, so I, I just go serve dessert. I'm out of here. You know, so I didn't die. All right, I'll get the coffee. So. I went, I didn't qualify, but here I'm floating out of the ambulance, and I thought, well, this is it. I'm out of here, and I'm I'm hovering, and I thought, where's my tunnel, and I'm looking around, and I went into an honestly a little bit of a panic. I thought, my God, they don't know I'm dead yet. (laughs) Who do I call? I can't find my tunnel. Right, I can't find my, and there wasn't any tunnel. I was terribly mortified, but I... (laughs) 
did feel a presence behind me. Yeah. The presence said, you've got to go back. This yeah. isn't your time. Yeah. And I said, all right, I've been waiting for you. But at that point, this is the only truly cosmic part of it, because everything's funny to me. At the end of the day, if it's not funny, I don't need it. Yeah, it so doesn't work. I looked down, and by this time, I really had become an tiny, tiny little speck. And, and the proportions, yes, yeah. the proportions of life had been shifted in yeah. front of me. Yep. And the earth really did appear to be itsy-bitsy and me even tinier. Just a speck. And, really. And yep. the presence said, you have to go back. Yep. And I'm, then I looked at my body and I said, mentally, I don't know how I'm going to get in there. It's I, I won't fit. fit. Yep. And, you know, an image was popped in my head of a genie twirling into the bottle. Yeah, yeah. And I thought, yeah. is that what that means? Now I'm back in the hospital. Great image. I'm really, I'm back in the hospital, and I had arrived DOA. I'm in Jeez. the um, emergency room, and there's all this kind of... You can't die from a nosebleed, Carolyn. It's too embarrassing on your tombstone. And there you go again. You see, it is true. There's no class to it. Oh, my God. It's no class to it. I mean, it's die what a Neiman Marcus with a great Prada you, gown on or something. Uh, there you happens. go. I have to die of too many jewels, but not <laughs> this. That's a cheap gangland death. I'd take a hit right to the face, you know. So, so you're DOA in the So here's nurses. the wondrous thing. I knew I was going to make it, of course. Anyway, the next day the doctor came in my hospital room and he said, you know what, Carol, we have to give you some blood transfusions. You're out. And if this starts again, we can't bring you back. There's no blood in your body. And so he says, I've got it. This is an emergency. So he puts the blood in. Here comes the miracle. Honest to God, maybe you've been through this, but when you're out of blood and it comes in your body, it really is like that inflatable do 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 And you, you come back to life. But here's the, here's the wonderment. That whole trauma that had made me ill, I retained every memory of it, but no emotion. Really? I'd been flushed, Ken. I had been purged, and ice. It was for me one of the most extraordinary, awesome experiences. Was in that moment where I thought, "My God, they purged me of a rage I was too weak to get rid of myself." Wow! wow. And I had all the memories, but none of the emotion. And you know what? It never came back. The emotion never did. Never came back. All the repressed anger, everything, it was gone, Ken. I was like a Buddhist nun when it came to this stuff after that. I was completely, totally detached. It had been downloaded. But in a good sense. But in a perfect sense. Yeah. It wasn't like, I don't care what you're doing, yeah, detached. Yeah. It wasn't numbness. It was pure, non attached. Totally. Purity. It was as if, well, it didn't happen to me yeah. because yeah. it didn't. Yeah. Whatever, whoever had joined my body brought me the gift of detachment, and it was like, a, you know what, it, it was like the psychic miracle cure. The, my history, my raging history of this had been erased. It was gone. I looked at them from such a different place, and then I was able to say, it's time for me to go. And it wasn't, a, I'm getting out of here. It was, I, I really, it was time to go, and I was in a state of awe. That's a great story. Yeah. That beats the daylight out of just the little crummy little tunnels. Yeah. But that's... That's an incredible story. Well, it's a wonderful story, but you also, you're aware of the sort of general idea behind it, which is that that ever-present infinite awareness yeah. is always primordial purity. 
And whether you have an out-of-the-body experience to realize it or whether you have a profound satori while in the body, it's being dunked in that ever-present purity that does sort of cleanse away karmic stains, if you will. And then you come back into embodiment without the hang-ups of it, if you will. And that's it's supposed to happen, but that's one of the most dramatic... I mean, leave it to you to nosebleed your way into that thing. Yeah, well, well see how sick <laughs> I am. Some medical intuitive. Yeah, yeah, Don't you but, know you're sick and repressed, angry and unforgiving? Yeah, yeah. No, but I'll write about it, right? But what but, a beautiful ending. I mean, my God. It's fantastic. Well, you know, um, well, now, wait a minute. Not to make myself sound perfect, there's a part two to this that is really sort of deeply confidential. Repressed, angry, and unforgiving? Yeah, yeah. No, but I'll write about it, right? But what a beautiful ending. I mean, my God. It's fantastic. You know, um, well, now, wait a minute. Not to make myself sound perfect, there's a part two to this. You know, I think that God's heaven gives us so many opportunities to act on the spiritual truth that is inherent, the natural law, that which we were born knowing. We know we cannot steal. We know these things. But we also know that to be bitter takes a great deal of energy. It's not a natural state. It's a difficult act. So what I did was I kicked in, by choice, back into a negative field. i got to tell you, I went right back there. Well, in, when you got back in your body and then went back into the negative. Yeah, even, you know, after my little psychic honeymoon. Yeah, yeah. And then you put me back in the farm and you put me back at the publishing company and, I, and blah, 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 blah. It hit again. But not in the same way. Yep. It didn't go into my blood. It went into my mind. It went into my mind. The negativity? Or it, the... It, yeah, yeah. It went in. I locked in. I really understand what it means to be under a spell i went into a thought form and i've got a strong mind and it engaged and i it was relentless and and what happened after that this was in august of 88 i bled to death now we're in july of 89 right and that's when i thought i have got to leave this environment i can't function here the gods told me to get out in august i didn't i walked back in and I twisted myself all over again. They go back to the farmhouse, and I experienced a very bizarre feeling electromagnetically through my brain. And I had eight of them that day. I didn't know what it was. So then a little while eight, later... Eight experiences? Huh? Yeah. Like These little, aren't mythical, like honey. Like episode kind of thing? They were what, is, what I now know to be auras. Okay. Okay? All right. And I don't mean that mystically. No, I understand. I mean neurologically. Sure. And I phone Norm Sheely, who's a neurosurgeon, yeah. and I said, I'm in trouble. So I went, I flew to Norm, and he put me through MRIs and all that other stuff, and it, and, and, uh, and it began for me an odyssey in the unconscious world of hell, like I have never known. Where would it strike again? Right. Where would it strike again? Feel that negativity circulating, only it, this time yes. through the mental or psyche yep. realm. I'm, I'm telling you, it was wow. ferocious. And still... I would make myself go to work, and I would go to all these foreign countries and think, God help me, don't let it happen here. Don't let it happen here. What what did Norm tell you it was? Well, they put me through all kinds of tests, and it was called idiopathic. They didn't know. In other words, they have no bloody idea. Right. Ken, it was me. It was the fire in my belly. I hear you. It was what I'm capable of when I'm not in a good place. Did I not have to see this one? Jesus, was that? It was the torment of hell because you're walking around with a demon 
that can get you at any time, and yeah. you don't know where. I really went through. I wanted to die. Yeah. I, I wanted to die. I thought, this is not life. I can't be a contained animal. Yeah, yeah. I left the farm, and I moved back in with my mother and my aunt. I didn't know what to do. Yeah. And I would go to bed in the room I grew up with. Can I am now in my late 30s. And I am laying in bed thinking, oh, my God, life's brought you back to your twin bed where you grew up. Oh, my God. It was so traumatic. It was so traumatic. And then I would get up, go travel someplace, get all zooted up in a in a designer label suit, get on a stage in front of 2,000 people and think, if you only knew that I go home to my mother and I cannot even drive a car. Right. I lived in a surreal space. That was so intense. And finally, I did this. I said to myself, this has got to stop. And so I thought, what is missing? I thought, what what do I do? And um, I, I realized I had yet to truly forgive. Now, see, the gods had put me down the road, but I hadn't forgiven. That no purge on earth can take care of, and I learned that. There is that gods will not forgive for you. They helped me so much, but they didn't go the journey I had to. And couldn't, could they? And they couldn't, Ken. So I went into a prayer, and I said, all right, okay. There are people who said, you arrange for me to meet them, and I'll take it from there. Right. Shortly after that, there it was again, the rage. Boom, knee-jerk reaction. I call up, and I started to just, you know, how dare you self. He says... You cannot forgive a thing, can you? <gasps> wow, there it was. I said, oh, my God. I said, hold on for a minute. <laughs> I did. I said, hold on for a minute. And I, I centered myself, and I went back, and I said, this is perfect. I said, I want you to do me a favor. I want you to become me, and I want to become you. I want you to walk me through. I want you to tell me what you were feeling and why you made the choices you did. I want you to make me you. And that's what we did. Wow. And at the end of it, so he was just like earth school paperwork. He was my rehearsal. He right. was my forgiveness rehearsal. Right. All right. So then I said to the gods, okay, that's number one. Number two, yet to go. That was the following summer. I, I had to go back to New Hampshire, a little bitty Walpole. I was with my, my uh, gentleman friend at the time. So I walk in, sure enough. Now, my little village of Walpole was where Christ lost his shoe, Ken. It's a village of 800 people, and you, quite frankly, have to make an effort to get there. So... <laughs> When she saw me and she said, what are you doing here? And I say, oh, I'm just passing through. Is there a bigger lie? So could there be a bigger lie? She said to me, you know, she said, you know, would you come up to the house? I said, no. And then she said, you know what, I will always love you, and I hope someday you'll get over this. And I just froze. Can I froze like a stick. Later, I'm haunted. I go back to the to the um, guest house, and I'm thinking, you unmitigated four-star flaming butane bitch. <laughs> and so I called her up. And I said, do you want to meet for lunch? Next day we meet for lunch. I walk in. She looks at me. I look at her. And no tears, none of that. I just sat down and said to myself in a prayer, get back here. This is from this point on, present time and a new life. And then I said, God, you go that extra distance. You know that I'm putting it all here. If I can't forgive her, you do the rest for me and I'll catch up with you. Right. And it was over. And from that point on, my system returned to health. Wow. Of course, I got the gallbladder because that I never stop accumulating these little tidbits of negativity <laughs> because God only knows. But, Ken, 
I learned when I stand in front of an audience now and I say things to them, I haven't got any patience with you unforgiving shrews. I just don't. I've been there. It took me 20 years. It did kill me. I did rise from the dead. Why do you think I'm going to sit here and say, are you poor thing? I'm not. I'm going to look at you and say, are you stupid? Do you want to do what I did? Are you crazy? So that's where I am. And you speak with authority. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Next lifetime, I'm going to be a banker so that the authority comes through a different channel. I just can't deal with this anymore. I don't know. The only part of the narrative that I might slightly disagree with is uh, looking at it now when you can sort of look back and see the many people that you're working with Mm -hmm. while you were going through the crisis, though, you were still imparting some very important information, some very important guidelines to people. Yeah. So it's not necessarily that, you know, you were living a lie to people. It's just I don't think you'd completely finish the process that you'd set in motion, so to speak. Don't you think that's fair? Yeah. You know, I don't have what it takes to live a lie. You know, I can, I am a primetime exaggerator if I have to be. (laughs) <laughs> but I really am not a good liar. My, my father used to say when I was growing up, he says, you've got a very bad memory, and that's a blessing. A liar needs a good one. And I'm not good at it, and I'm not good at being okay with things that aren't okay. Right, right. And I'm, and I'm not good with not helping somebody if yeah. they need it. I'm yeah. just not good at those things, and I like the things I've become not good at. Don't you think that... I mean, because I don't get a sense, actually, from either from either of us, from either you or I, that that we necessarily want to go around telling people, or even giving advice for that matter. You know, this is how you should live your life, or this and this mm-hmm. and so on. But whenever you go through, or whenever you're given any sort of understanding, I think part of the contract that you have mm-hmm. that we're sort of talking about is that you have to communicate it to others. Mm-hmm. That's part of the deal. And yeah, that is. if you don't communicate these truths as you've lived them or seen them, that you get even sicker. In some profound way, you get sick if you don't communicate them. So I get the sense of, of a lot of people, really, that are, I think, really good teachers. It's not that they feel that they have to go around sort of saying, oh, I figured it out, or here's the way to do it, or so on and so on. But just that this is something I've seen. Mm-hmm. And I want to tell you what I've seen, and you see if it makes sense for you. Mm-hmm. But there's a, there's a compellingness, there's a duty, if you will, to at least communicate it. You know what I mean? Oh, I think I, I couldn't agree with you more. I yeah. think that we, we, you know, as teachers, and at the end of the day, I consider myself a damn good teacher, yeah. and I yeah. am, yeah. that you can't stop bursting at yeah. the seams with your life's journey. And I, and I think there, and for, for people who have a sense that life is a spiritual mission, a spiritual experience that we were born with fundamental tasks to do. And part of the task is the way we live and part of it is the way we share and part of it is the way we become. Um, But you you can't, it's too late now, you know, for, for, it's too late. It's too late for me to go backwards. So, um, I, and when I, when I turned 50, which I did this past December, I had a real sort of age crisis as I realized I had less time in front of me than behind me and that I'd parted with my partner. Yeah. And and it was, you know how you just sort of spin down into a, oh, God, where am I and where am I going to end up and blah, 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 blah. But from that point on, I started to rebuild and let go of everything from yesterday that I simply don't want. Right, right. And... um, 
So back to, I, I'm feeling wonderful, and I'm feeling when I look at people now, and I, I've reached a point as a teacher where I don't feel like a novice anymore. I am a master teacher. I am terrific. Yeah, yeah. And the gods, I could have been the best history teacher you ever came across because that's my evocation. <laughs> really, truly, Ken, I'm not I kidding. It's my thing is history. Yeah. But that's not where the gods put me. Yeah. Um, nevertheless, my, I feel like somehow I now am in my center as a teacher, and I love that feeling. And I look at my life and I realize that I've accumulated biological lessons, psychic lessons, yep. spiritual, and now I'm weaving them into a thread to keep me in center. Yeah. Now, what do you see? You have a, an enormous readership, and, and I mean it's a very positive sense. You, you, you've, you've gotten a message out, and it's not a simplified, um, you know, simplistic bumper sticker message. You've written some very complex, complicated, difficult in the best sense works but you have a really huge wonderfully large readership um Mm -hmm. and i'm curious what you attribute that to because i think the thing that so answer my own question in a sense if you agree but i think the thing that makes a really great teacher like you're talking about particularly a spiritual teacher is not just the enthusiasm the passion that that you have i think there's just what you said earlier there's almost an inability to lie in other words it's just this ruthless truth-telling through every adventure, and whether the adventure paints you in a good light or a bad light, it's told in a truthful light. And I think that's what's so compelling to people. I think that's what really grabs them. Because um, they're a passionate liars, frankly, and they're just not very moving. <laughs> but you know what I mean? But they're passionate truth-tellers, and somehow, whether it's something, seriously, as, as seemingly you know mundane on one hand as getting gallbladders or as, as really dramatic as bleeding to death, mm-hmm. there's a certain passionate honesty about you know going through the thing. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, I... I, it does. I've wondered myself, why are all of you in this audience? And it's especially funny script to me because that's not how I intended to live my life. When I was seven, I said to my mom, I'm going to be a writer. And then when I was a little older, I saw a movie uh, with Somerset and the life of Somerset Mom. And, and the, what, the guy who played his part, George something or an English actor, he had a line in there. I think I was nine years old, Ken. And he said, oh, I just adore being a writer. I can make such a wonderful contribution and remain anonymous because right. nobody knows the face of a writer. Right. I looked at it and I said, that's it. That's my life right there. I want to make a big contribution. I want to be anonymous. Because it felt like the combination of the best kind of power in the world. Right. But I didn't expect the way my life unfolded, and I thought I would be a fiction author. Ah. That was my passion, was to be a fiction author. To this day, I sit around and think, all right, I'll knock out the next book, but will you please download me with something wonderful to write as fiction? I keep thinking, well, maybe next year, maybe I'm like the Cubs now, maybe well, next year. I've got the curse <laughs> the, of the... The ego's a big fiction, and then the sense that's all we're writing about, so maybe you are a big fiction writer. So it really is this funny little relationship of living a life I didn't see coming, and there is an and I can't I can't language this the way I it is I'm so in a funny way detached from that that I I focus on my work and I have an impatience with teaching I'm impatient when I walk into a classroom I think my edge that raw edge people associate with me 
they'd be so disappointed if I was suddenly your standard soft new ager. You know, <laughs> this light and love, all of which I think is unmitigated crap. But I do. So I, I have absolutely not an ounce of respect for, and they'll be light and love. No, they won't. This will always be a nasty place. Snap out of it. I can't stand you naive people. Knock it off with you. God, God, eat a, get a, eat a cheeseburger. Get, get grounded. Get out of my life. But, uh, you know, this kind of thing. I'm just terrible. This is me. Okay, now you know who I am. Now you know what I'm like. But I, I, you, I just look through their – I, I real, as I said to them, you want to know how conscious you are? I'm going to show you how conscious you are. The moment I – change your seats and take all you people who are greedy for the front row and shove you in the back is the moment that your two-year-old little wounded child is going to come banging out, and I'll show you how conscious you are. <laughs> so, anyway. That's yeah, and, but for this abuse, they people pay. stand in line for hours. Go figure. <laughs> you, tell, you go figure. I don't get it. I wouldn't pay to see me. <laughs> I wouldn't. I mean, I, 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 um, I am in, but I'll tell you, between you and me, I am so intrigued with the process of spiritual revelation that I would go through hell yeah. for what I experienced privately. Yeah. I would go through the fires of hell for what I experienced. In those quiet moments when I sit and think, I don't understand this. And I feel that I am filled with a perception that I did not read, but it emerged. Yeah. I feel, I feel in love. Uh, I feel in 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 a, in a sense of loveness where I understand that mystical place Teresa Vivia wrote about. Or I I understand I don't live there, yeah. but I have been given the grace to visit. I have a visitor's pass, <laughs> and I can get in between. I can get through the mist sometime. And when I'm in that place, it is truly transcend. You don't need a lot of transcendence to get by. Yeah. You know, you don't need a lot of it. it All you need to do way. is get a taste of it, and you know that Oz really exists. Right. So in the privacy of those thoughts, and when I can, I have that capacity to, like, I live like a zoom lens. I can pull out of a situation and not move my body. Yep. But my whole being has left. Yep. And gone elsewhere to a better place. Yep. Even though I'm sitting there having dinner with you, I am not there. Your body's that little speck. Oh, yeah. I love what I've learned to do yeah. with my interior world, and I love that I don't have to share it, that I've developed a mature enough spirit that I keep my interior life to myself. Yeah. And you said you'd go through hell for those revelations. I th- don't you think that's also part of the kind of contract? Yeah, I do. You know, that's sort of part, that, which is so interesting, which is why I really, I really love the notion of contract. Again, you can read it in any number of ways you want to read mm-hmm. it, and they're all meaningful. They're all very useful in a certain sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a, one of the ones that struck me is, it's, it's funny, but it's also profound, and that was Helen Schuchman, who you know is oh, yes. described for The Course in Miracles. Yeah. Um, she claimed all of her life that she hated the Course, that she didn't agree with it, that mm-hmm. she was just a practicing militant, Jew, and she didn't want anything to do with it. And yet this interior voice, which, by the way, claims to be Jesus uh, Christ, um, is dictating to her this, this rather remarkable mm-hmm. you know, series of teachings, of course, in mm-hmm. miracles. And so at one point, since she was always bitching and moaning about it, somebody said, you know, well, why are you even doing this? Mm-hmm. And she says, I have no idea. And the person said, well, why don't you ask it? the voice? Ask mm-hmm. the voice why you're doing it. So she went, all right. So, so she asked the voice, why am I doing this? Why did you, you know, and why did you choose me? Mm-hmm. And the voice said, because you'll do it. 
mm-hmm. which is very funny. Mm-hmm. So in some profound way, she was doing it because she had agreed to do it. Mm-hmm. And that's the interesting thing about contracts, because on the surface, they can be the things that you bitch and moan about the most. They are. But in the depths, they're exactly that mm-hmm. which you most want. I think that that is, is that nature of contracts is that they are meant to disappoint the ego but fill the soul. Oh, yeah. And therein lies the, the intensity of life, which is this isn't what I asked for, but it is what I need. And I think, you know, I now, I, I look at the universe divided into acts of necessity opportunities of choice, and then the presence of compassion. Uh, and I, those are the three angels that I think are present in every one of our moments, that there are things of necessity that, and, and fate, you know, destiny and choice are a team, and then there is the presence, ever-present compassion. Uh, I think it's very hard for people to understand compassion as transcendent of, of sympathy or empathy or those pathetic terms, but what compassion is in that sense of uh, it's okay if you bleed. I am going to give you the grace to understand why bleeding is necessary, right. not take it away. It's hard to accept compassion at that cold level because it's an impersonal, it is that intimate, impersonal phenomenon that only God is. Right. Incredibly impersonal and fully intimate. Right. Um, and I'm enchanted with that. Yeah. How did you begin? Enough about me. <laughs> I'm bored now. Tell me about you. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I, you know, I, mine was, I tended to go probably started at the uh, cognitive end and then ended up at more at the feeling or emotional or, or love end of the spectrum. And I was just, I was trying to figure it out. I mean, I went to Duke University to be a doctor. Uh, I was, you know, I'd learned all the sciences. I was chemistry, biology, physics, all of that. I'd learned all of that stuff. And none of the really important questions were, were, were really asked or answered. And I figured, well, since I seem to know all of the stuff, the conventional truths, and then I'm still just basically pretty miserable, I really don't understand this at all. And so that just threw me into years of search. And at first on a very cognitive level, so I would just read everything. You know, Freud and Jung and Krishnamurti and Alan Watts and Zen and Suzuki and everything. And then then I was just really totally confused because Mm -hmm. they all disagreed with each other. Mm -hmm. And so then I thought, well, now, I mean, I just started out, I was unhappy, and now I'm unhappy and confused. Mm-hmm. Can so, this get any better? I mean, this is not helping. And so I figured in order to get, you know, from unhappy to happy, I'd have to get from confused to unconfused. And I have mm-hmm. to sort of start at that end. And so I was really, it was really quite early. I was in my, I was 21 or 22 and, and um, going through graduate school at that point in biochemistry. And I was, but I was spending all my time, you know, reading gestalt therapy and practicing Zen and reading Taoism and stuff. And then finally, see, sort of this conceptually, it came together that maybe all of these different approaches to human suffering and misery and all the different spiritual schools and psychotherapy schools, maybe they were all right. In other words, they were all correct. They all had some really important truth to tell us. Uh, but that consciousness was like a spectrum. And so my first book was called Spectrum of Consciousness. And the idea was that they could each be true when dealing with a different band of the rainbow of consciousness. And that way, they, they could all have something important to tell us. Mm-hmm. 
so I just sort of started on that kind of theoretical level. And when, when that sort of made sense to me, then I really wanted to live it. You know, mm-hmm. I wanted to be able to, to bring some of that into my own life. And so then I began doing psychotherapy. And you know, I was kind of doing it anyway, but I was you know, really practicing meditation, really doing therapy, mm-hmm. and really trying to do uh, interpersonal stuff and so on. And so I kind of just came into it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no question, though, that because certain of my strengths have always been, you know, theoretical, that I've, mm-hmm. I've continued to write theoretical books. Mm-hmm. So I've kind of stayed to that side of the street in a certain sense in terms of my own uh, communication, for example. But in my own life, it's just been a, a desire to really embody this stuff, to really just become more and more awake. Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. means both big mind and big heart. Mm-hmm. You know, the more consciousness you have, the more compassion you have. Mm-hmm. Because your identity just expands to include more and more and more sentient beings until you realize that you are fundamentally the reality that, that all of them are. Mm-hmm. There's that, whether you want to call it one consciousness or one self or just ever-present isness. Mm-hmm. And out of that comes an extraordinary compassion because basically everything that's arising is arising as a manifestation of your own self. And mm-hmm. everybody can say that. Every sentient being can say that. Mm-hmm. And so all of a sudden, then it, it's really taken out of the theoretical and into the very, very practical, the, the, the very texture of this moment, the very nature of this reality, and this sort of radiant, empty, ever-present awareness that every sentient being is, and just to awaken to that more and more. And that does really very much relate to what we were saying earlier, which at some point it, it dawns on you, that awakening to that ever-present reality means not acquiring something, but just confessing that you already know it. Just mm. uh, absolute admission that you are that one, that you are that realized awareness. Mm-hmm. And that's a very that's a very intricate, delicate process because precisely because nothing needs to be done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that often takes a lot of doing to get to the point where mm-hmm. you can mm-hmm. not do. Absolutely. You know? <laughs> well you realize I've I that that is part of what takes me into that place of awe where you realize if I acknowledge that I know this. Yeah. If I really animate my acknowledgement, then I have just changed the entire metaphysical chemistry of my life. The alchemy in acknowledgement cannot be measured. So we can say that's all it takes, but that's all that's required. And that's, that to me is the, the most extraordinary part. That's the mustard seed mountain. It is so profound to realize that I can reshape this today by forgiving that one person and I have reshaped the alchemy in my life or by saying, acknowledging, you're absolutely right. Life is about my awareness and presence and engagement with others. So I do have to change the rules now. Yeah. yeah. Uh, how profound that is. Yeah. Your work is magnificent. Well, your, your work is absolutely magnificent. Thank you so much. I, it's like you. It's you know how we actually end up doing this, I sometimes get the feeling that because the ultimate secret is that there really is just this one great wonderful self playing all these different roles, that all of us are doing what we can that, that, you know, to remind each other of who we are. And in some bizarre sense, it's like this one self shows up over here as Carolyn and says do this, and it shows up over here as Ken and says do this, and it shows up over here as some other teacher or so on. And that these are all roles mm-hmm. you know, that we're playing to remind us of who we are in any event. Mm-hmm. So at that point, it's, it's it, you know, I sometimes just lose a sense of who's authoring what. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. It, I, I think, you know, we could... Uh, 
Absolutely. It's, it's like the truth of all scriptures. As you keep sh- shaving off the history, you get to the point where it all looks alike. It all looks alike, and you're the author of all of them. Mm-hmm. And every person can say that. Every single sentient being can say that. And at that point, the game is getting very close to up. Mm-hmm. Well, the game is getting close to up. That is a good title. Remember that. Okay. Remember that when you when you take on the next text. That would be just delicious. The game's almost over. Look up. Uh, exactly. Well, so what's pragmatically? What's uh, where are you off to next? You did Australia. What are you gonna? What are you? What are you doing? Oh well, I have. Because um, you are everywhere. Yeah. You? Well, I, I'm. I'm at home base. I have to go. At least that's a lie. Look at this. I've already forgot. I've already eclipsed my calendar in my own head. Saturday, <laughs> I have to go for a week's tour through Canada. Then I come back, and then it's odds and ends here then i have my institute and then i i take off for finhorn scotland now what are you doing in finhorn well i'm doing a, a workshop there yeah conference and yeah. i used to always stay at Treya. yeah by the way yeah so um then i will do some things in london then i'll come home in the meantime the gods have done something just miraculous which is part of this past year's journey for me too and that's that i moved i live in a sweet little village and next to Chicago called Oak Park. Right. And I moved in six years ago, right. and I spotted this one house, Ken. Oh, my God, I fell in love. I, if I felt like this about a man, I'd marry him. I <laughs> felt, who would think the love of my life would be a house? What is wrong with me? I saw this place, and I thought, oh, what I would give. And then through these years, when I'd go for a walk, and it's, you know, it's right down on the block where Frank Lloyd Wright has his studio and all his homes, and I oh just bought this. And it's an 1885 Queen Anne Victorian, and it's on the corner, and it's just this stunning piece of art. Well, through, I popped into this real estate office last year, and, and this woman said, you're looking for a house? I said, could be, maybe, but you people annoy me, so here are the rules. <laughs> I want these two blocks. That's it. And I want a Victorian. Don't call me. Oh, my God. So in June, she said, there's this Victorian that became available on Forest Avenue. So I got the wrong address. I go down there. It's the one Victorian I don't like. I call her up and say, I don't want to see it. I have a 2 o'clock showing. I'm not interested. What's wrong with you? Blah, blah, blah. Talks me into it. Turns out it was the house that I wanted. It wasn't God. the Victorian I didn't want. I had the wrong address. Oh, my God. I popped out of the car. I said, this is it? This oh, one? my God. She said, yes. I said, it's sold. Do you want to know how much it is? Yeah, I'll sell drugs. I don't really care. <laughs> I want this house. It's done. Get to the negotiating table. And that's it. I got it. So now I'm in the process of the renovations that have to take place, but I'm positively enchanted. I'm enchanted. It's, it's, I walked in there yesterday, and I just walk around. It's, all, it's vacant, of course, and I have to have um, the kind of changes I want put in. But, Ken, it is a jewel of a house. Uh well, that's, I mean, it's perfect then. Yeah. I mean, get a doggy. Get a doggy. And, we you know, as for men, I mean, the, the house is, I think, much better than men. And there's that, there's that other wonderful line from, a, um, I think, a Henry Yaglum film where a woman says, basically, all I'm looking for is a man that's as satisfying as a baked potato. <laughs> and I think, <laughs> I, I, think, I think he's got a house that's a step up from a baked potato. Well, you, you know, relationships are just so, I, I had this relationship, I parted in August, six and a half years, and it was so, oh, 
But, you, you know, I, you just, I finally said to the guys, I, I, you know what, here's the thing. I don't want any more stress. Find me something stressless, I'll take it. Otherwise, go away. Nothing in the manifest realm is like that. Now, wait a minute. I have some lifetime friendships that are stressless. I adore these people. Does it involve sex? No. Yeah, I think that's the kicker, don't you? Because it's like, because it's right down there, you like the reptilian brainstem and the limbic system and, and you're dealing with testosterone, you're dealing with men for the most yeah. part, which yeah. can be really scary item. And I just, you know, I've, I've, I'm not sure I know any stress-free relationships that cross that divide. I just, I don't, you know, I don't, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I, you know, how are you feeling? I'm doing well. Give me my up, what is, well, do you mind? No, no, not at all. Everything's relative, and I'm grading on the curve here. Mm-hmm. But I'm feeling pretty good. Mm-hmm. So, uh, <laughs> bodies. Well, you know, I, I <laughs> uh, believe me, if there's anything I can ever do, even just to talk all night with you, which I'm brilliant at. <laughs> well, bless you. You got me. Well, listen, come through the area sometime, and let's just hang out again. Oh, I'd love it. We had such a good time. It was true. We did. And let's just, let's, we need to do that. Okay, now before I let you go, I need to find my glasses. If I had LASIK surgery, I can't see a thing. What <laughs> is life about? Will you tell me that? <laughs> There's no justice. I had this so I can't, because I couldn't see far and I can't see close. What, what, what did I gain? Tell me, what did I gain? I don't know. Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. Life is so unfair. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Oh, God. I don't know what I'd do if I couldn't laugh, honey. I don't know what I'd do. So did you, did you get your glasses? Well, now, yeah. Okay. I mean, I, and of course, I'm just mortified because they're, they're, what do you call those things, specs? Yep. But if I can get a really class pair, I don't mind. Uh, I don't know. I think specs and gallbladder, this is sounding old to me. Stop it. <laughs> you get to say that not more than once, and then it's all over but the crying. Our new best friendship is over. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, you know, I'm, I've turned into a happy camper. See? Well, oh, my God. Well, don't let that get out. Yeah. No, I really have. I've turned into a happy camper, and I love the ideas of the things I want to write and and cooking along. And just, I think that decision to to truly enjoy each day of my life to the best of my ability, for the first time, that desire is, my choice is not theory, but I can feel my spirit in it. Yeah. Hey, thanks for listening. We at Integral Life have been producing cutting-edge discussions and practices for over 15 years now, and most of the conversations are even more relevant today than when they were originally published, which is why we call them evergreen conversations. They never fade, they never spoil, and they only become more valuable the longer we sit with them. Which is why we're making many of these classic discussions available to you. Each week, we're featuring one of these conversations here on our Everyone is Right podcast. So be sure to subscribe to this feed with your favorite podcast app. We'll also continue to post excerpts and sometimes full episodes from our ongoing conversations at IntegralLife.com. And if you like what you hear on this podcast, we invite you to become a supporting member in order to access our premium audio and video podcast, as well as to help support the emergence of integral voices in the world. You can get your first month for only $1, which will give you access to our full library of perspectives, practices, and presentations, all designed to help you thrive in today's ever-changing and quickly evolving world.